This is your host, Josh Schnepps. I'm thrilled to have with me New York City mayoral candidate Diane Morales, who is a Bed-Stuy Brooklyn native, um, and uh, she is two working-class Puerto Rican parents. Diane Morales is running to be the first Afro-Latino mayor of New York. Diane's career has been focused on building partnerships, reimagining new systems, and leveraging massive resources to deliver high-quality services and real opportunities to struggling people and families. She was a founding board member of Jumpstart, which is a 25-year-old national nonprofit that prepares preschoolers for kindergarten. She earned her undergraduate degree from Stony Brook University and graduate degrees from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Columbia University. Diane started her career as an educator, teaching fourth grade at PS 154, the same school she attended as a child. So Diane, I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just saying, we're getting ready to come down the home stretch. So I'm really appreciative for your time and and just to share a little bit about yourself with our audience, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So, you you know, you shared quite a bit about my background. Um, I'm a first generation um, Afro Latin, also first generation um, college student. And, you know, I um, have spent my entire career working to support vulnerable and marginalized communities to gain access really to academic and economic opportunities, the things that help all of us be able to live in dignity and provide for our families. Um, And I was pretty successful in that, but the more successful I got, the longer the wait list, right? Because word gets around. Um, And I started thinking about how I could use my lived experiences, both as a first generation single mother, you know, um, and an executive of human service anti-poverty organizations. How do I combine those things and bring them to bear to actually create structural and systemic change um, so that people have easier access to the things that they need and and we're addressing some of the inequities and injustices in our system. Um, And so, you know, that was pre-pandemic. I decided to to run for mayor because I thought I have something to offer there. But the pandemic has also really exposed and exacerbated some of those inequalities. Um, And I think it's it's sort of affirmed not only my commitment to running, but actually my belief in the idea that this is the time for us to really exercise the political and moral courage to make some transformative change for our city so that we can build back build a city that's better than it's ever been, not go back to normal, but actually create something new. Um, keeping in mind and centering those those folks who, you know, we applauded as essential workers throughout the course of last summer, who we also know are the most vulnerable um, and least protected. Um, we can build something new that actually uh, makes it possible for them to live in dignity as well so that we can all do better. You know, on that topic, talk about what your plan or focus or vision is to be able to help some of the poor communities, whether it's uh, you know, black and brown communities or just some of the other struggling communities that we have in New York City? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple key pillars, right, to safety and dignity. Um, One is access to housing. Um, So I've called for housing as a human right um, and really transforming the way we do housing in New York City right now, which prioritizes luxury developers and um, gives them access to a lot of tax subsidies and grants and incentives. Um, And, you know, really, you know, my my sort of challenge is what would it look like or what could it look like if we actually invested those dollars in prioritizing our most vulnerable, right? So making sure that we are creating really affordable housing for people so that everybody gets guaranteed access to affordable affordable permanent housing. I think that's critical. And the other piece I think about is how do we we build a new economy for the people? 
Um, historically, we've, we've focused a lot on large corporations and big businesses, and those are the organizations that we give the tax incentives to and, and the subsidies. And what would it look like if instead we focused on small and mid-sized businesses who employ the other 50% of New Yorkers and prioritize giving them those dollars so that they can build back? Because we also know that small and mid-sized businesses, the owners tend to live locally, um, they're employing local people and they're investing locally. So that's a different way of thinking about um, growing back our economy from the ground up and from the center out, rather than prioritizing, you know, big businesses that come into our communities, exploit our labor and extract our wealth. Um, so those are two key pillars. And I think about incorporating in that um, the undocumented, the immigrant communities, the, the workers that have been excluded um, and making sure that they have access to those protections and securities as well. So what kind of benefits would be available? I have to ask you as a small business owner myself, you know, what, what do you see in terms of opportunities that could be created specifically for small business owners? Sure. I mean, I, 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 we've seen what tax relief has done for large corporations and the stock market, right? We saw that in particular um, at the height of the pandemic when the stock market went up and, you know, we, we generated more millionaires and billionaires and people got increasingly vulnerable and, you know, marginalized the small, small businesses. Um, you know, I'm suggesting that we develop a new framework that actually reverses that model, right? That we stop the corporate welfare model and actually provide those supports on the ground in our communities. Um, and, and so that, that would provide an infusion of funding. Um, I'm also talking about, you know, things like commercial rent control um, for, for people that have actual, you know, storefront spaces um, and really making sure that we are easing regulations and fines to make it make it easier for folks to to operate um, and not burden them with exorbitant fines for small infractions that are generally harmless um, and also expanding the resources that are available for training technical assistance startup information you know education and information um, there's often language barriers um, bureaucratic barriers and there are things that we can do, I believe, to, to break that down. Um, and that includes some you know, reform at the small business, small business services, um, as well as expanding MWBE, um, minority women business, um, black owned enterprises, um, so that we are also increasing the supports to, to that sector of, of the small business world as well. You know, I have to ask you as a, as a past public educator that you are, what would you look to do with the Department of Education? I have two kids. I live in Brooklyn. You know, I think it's a critical question for a lot of people. And, and with your experience, I would love to hear your yeah. thoughts on, on public education. Yeah, I mean, I've called for a couple of different things, right? So one of the things I um, have uh, talked about is an executive order um, on you know, in my first 30 days to immediately move to dis desegregate our school system. Um, that means, uh, you know, eliminating all of our screens and our racist admissions policies that really um, contribute to the segregation of our DOE, our, of our schools, um, particularly at the lower level. It includes things like redrawing our district boundaries so that we can also increase access um, and, and begin the, the process of desegregation. Um, I think we need to take a hard look. We just got the fair student funding formula fully funded for the first time, um, but we still need to take a look at disparities in funding and resources across the city, right, with a specific eye towards um, addressing ongoing inequities in socioeconomics. 
Um, we need to create a culturally responsive curriculum so that it's much more reflective of the students that we're serving in the system and they can see themselves in the system. Um, and also the last thing I would say on this is to um, also prioritize diversifying and, and deepening teacher diversity pipelines, right? Through a partnership with CUNY, making sure that we are expanding access to the classroom to, to black and brown folks so that our children also see themselves reflected in, um, in the educators that are, um, that are standing at the front of the classroom. Uh, those are some of the things I think specifically to, you know, the, the first 100 days that I would prioritize in terms of beginning to address the, the deeply rooted issues in our system. You know, obviously with uh, COVID, healthcare is like everyone's number one priority. We talked yeah. a little bit about the economy, our children with education is critical and also safety, just public safety. So yeah. where do you stand in terms of, I mean, there's really, a national movement in regards to policing in general, but where, where do you stand? What would be your plan in terms of keeping our city safe? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we are in the middle of a civil rights movement, right? Um, what what, you're, what you reference in terms of what we've seen nationally, mm -hmm. um, there is a, a large movement calling for um, a different kind of safety in our communities. Um, policing does not equal public safety. You know, we have here in New York City, we have the largest budget um, and the largest number of officers in the country, if not in the world. We've got to recognize if there was actually a relationship between policing and public safety, we'd probably be the safest city in the country because um, we are definitely the, the most heaviest, uh, the most heavily resourced. Um, but we also know that the communities that are most heavily policed report being the most harmed by police. And that if any of us think about or envision in our minds a safe community, none of us are envisioning a community that has a lot of police presence. Um, so we need to actually work on building safe communities by um, you know, learning from what we know works. And that means moving funding from, the, from policing towards the kinds of things that people need in order to be safe. Access to housing, access to jobs, access to quality education, access to food. I mean, these are all of the things, the insecurity, um, these are all the insecurities that have been deepened and widened so dramatically over the course of the pandemic, right? Where, where people have been destabilized in this way. We actually have to invest in those things um, to really build, work towards building a safe society. Cause we've seen also that there's a link between public health public safety and access to housing. We've seen it in the course of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually should, you know, rather than um, trying to do the same old things and expecting a different outcome, which I think is the definition of insanity, we should actually be trying to do things differently so that we're building the long-term safety of our communities and recognizing that the, the safety of my neighbor is, is linked to, to my own. Terrific. You know, going back to the economy, you're promoting a people's bank to serve the needs of New Yorkers, not just the privileged, um, I guess, in, in upper class, but how would residents of New York City access these financial services? And just explain, I guess, what, what that vision is in terms of the people's bank. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the idea is that this would be, um, first of all, it would be an alternative to the commercial banks that New York City currently invests its billions of dollars in. Um, you know, the banks that we know are um, very often also uh, utilizing predatory practices and preying on our most vulnerable New Yorkers, charging exorbitant fees, um, et cetera. So the public bank would actually allow, you know, would enable us to provide services to the community at, 
at low to no cost, right? So people could access a bank account, people could cash a check or get a money or, you know, without the exorbitant fees that they are being, um, you know, that are being imposed on them right now. Um, it also would be part of the mechanism that would make it possible for us to provide really low interest loans to support our small businesses um, because we'd be moving out of the commercial banking, which we know, you know, charge interest rates that are often um, very, very burdensome for our, um, our businesses locally and really, really begin to use our, you know, our city, our city funds um, to divest from, you know, from these extractive in institutions and to bolster these social initiatives um, that ultimately will benefit most New Yorkers. It's a really exciting alternative um, to the systems that now exploit so many New Yorkers. Let's move on to technology because you talked a little bit about access. And I think, yeah. you know, internet is something I think a lot of people almost take for granted, like access to being able yeah. to get online. Even though I was talking to one of the public libraries and they were telling me that people even during COVID were sitting outside the libraries at night That's and it was right. because of the Wi-Fi. So, you know, right. you can't take for granted that uh, people have access to the internet. So I know you had a, a people-centered tech plan, if you don't mind sharing yeah. a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, you're right that we rely on the internet for so many basic functions these days, right? It's just become so natural for, for many of us. But the reality of it is that more than 90,000 New Yorkers don't have access to internet at all. Um, and over 185 school-aged children um, don't have internet at home. Um, and so we have to we have to factor that in when we, you know, in the world of COVID went to virtual learning, there's a really deeply rooted equity issue there. Um, when, you know, many of those children and families don't have access to the internet. And that's part of what resulted in people sitting outside libraries trying to tap into the Wi-Fi of the libraries. Um, so the people-centered tech plan, part of what it includes is the idea of creating free universal broadband citywide. Um, so that all New Yorkers, no matter where they are, have access to it. Um, and really kind of focusing on this, this city-owned um, internet service provider that, that would be built over, over four years, starting with NYCHA, where, where we know the inequities are our deepest, and then expanding um, into communities that currently are what we you know, refer to as broadband deserts. Um, they just don't have, they don't have the access. Um, really making sure that that system is, is built and maintained by, by, by union and city workers, right? So we're also then investing in the workforce um, and has a, a faster sort of upload and, and download speed um, than, than what many of our you know, lower income New Yorkers are currently, like currently have access to. Um, and really making sure that you know, not only folks have access, but um, that, they, that we are moving towards a tech system that makes city systems and services more re readily available to residents who will now have access to, um, to the broadband to do that. So, um, it, you know, the idea of centering our people are, are, you know, are the ones that the folks that get left behind, because everybody benefits, right? If we're building a citywide broadband, not only will the people that have historically not had it get access to it, but everybody else will be able to access it as well. That's a scary thought of school children you know, that were home not even able to access internet. Certainly yep. a scary thought. Yeah. But hopefully we're getting back to school and uh, back to normal soon. Yeah. From your lips. 
So a big issue is, you know, where's the money going to come from? We've been through COVID. The city, you know, has a lot of priorities, but it's got to be paid for in some way. There has been um, talk of uh, raising taxes on the wealthy. There's been pushback on that, that, you know, the wealthy are the ones driving the economy and you don't want them to leave the city. So if you don't mind just stare, uh, sharing, I guess, where you stand on that and um, what you see as a, as a tax structure as mayor. Yep, um, great. So I think the first thing I'll say on that is that before we even get to taxation, um, there is a lot that we need to do differently with the existing budget and dollars that we have. So, you know, I talk a lot about divesting um, and reinvesting, and I talk a lot about a budget that is a reflection of our values. Um, we can start with policing, right, where we know we have, as I mentioned earlier, the largest um, and most militarized policing budget in the country, if not the world. Um, there's a lot of room there for us to look at how we should, should and could use those dollars differently. And I think the same is true for a lot of different services, whether we're talking about the real estate industry and who we're investing in tax subsidies and grants um, in and who we're giving those dollars to. Um, and the same can be said on in the technology, I mean, in, in the business side, right? The economy side where I talked about who, you know, prioritizing large corporations and businesses over our small business owners. So I think there's a lot we can do with the dollars that we have differently so that um, we are providing a lot more support and resources to people in New York on the ground, um, you know, our most vulnerable. Um, and then I think there's a couple of different things. Um, I, I have called for a, a, a minor increase on New York's New York City tax. Um, I am a supporter of the, the New York State uh, Invest in Our New York package, which is a package of six bills um, that look to increase uh, taxes so that the wealthy can pay their fair share. And, and here's what I'm gonna say about that in response to what you mentioned in terms of people's fears or concerns. You know, we've seen over the course of the pandemic that there are more millionaires and billionaires in New York City as a result of it. But the reality of it is the millionaires and billionaires that benefited from the pandemic weren't out the ones out there doing the work. Um, they didn't get there because they were toiling and, and, and putting in the work. They got there because they had workers um, at much lower levels who were much more vulnerable and marginalized doing the work that they benefited from. So I don't think it's um, unreasonable for us to ask that they pay their fair share. Um, you know, it, it is, there's a, um, there's a tension and an irony in the fact that while so many New Yorkers were suffering and many losing their lives or putting their lives on the line in order to help keep the city running and to, to make it possible for so many of us to sit home and work at home comfortably, um, that there were people making profit off of that. Um, and that they wouldn't in turn invest in the, the, the people who we applauded at seven o'clock every night last summer and, and you know, appreciated for being our essential workers. Um, it's not the right time. It, you know, it's never the right time for us to turn our backs on them. So you know, that's what I think we need to, to recognize is this level of interdependence and sort of interconnectedness that had made, that's made it possible for the wealthy to get wealthier. Um, and how, um, you know, it's, it's not too much to ask that the people that made that possible actually be able to access the things they need to live in dignity. Well, Diane, I'm so grateful for you for sharing your vision and taking your time as we approach the home stretch to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really yeah, nice it's to talk to you. With you. Thank you.
This is Josh Schneps and uh, Schneps Connects. You can connect with us uh, anywhere you stream your podcast or online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.